Paul Krugman is a Nobel laureate in economics and a columnist for the New York Times. I'm going to read this recent column in its entirety because it is, it's really seminal to what's going on. And like myself, he's decided to go for the D word. Recessions are common, he says. Depressions are rare. As far as I can tell, there are only two eras in our economic history that were widely described as depressions at the time. The years of deflation and instability that followed the panic of 1873 and the years of mass unemployment that followed the financial crisis of 1929 to 31. Neither the long depression of the 19th century nor the great depression of the 20th was an era of nonstop decline. On the contrary, both included periods when the economy grew, but these episodes of improvement were never enough to undo the damage from the initial slump and were followed by relapses. Sound familiar? We are now, I fear, says Krugman, in the early stages of a third depression. It will probably look more like the Long Depression than the much more severe Great Depression, but the cost to the world economy and, above all, to the millions of lives blighted by the absence of jobs will nevertheless be immense. And this Third Depression will be primarily a failure of policy. Around the world, most recently at the recent deeply discouraging G20 meeting, governments obsessed about inflation when the real threat is deflation, preaching the need for belt tightening when the real problem is inadequate spending. Ah, the ghost of John Maynard Keynes. In 2008 and 2009, it seemed as if we might have learned from history. Unlike their predecessors who raised interest rates in the face of financial crisis, the current leaders of the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank slashed rates and moved to support credit markets. Unlike governments of the past who tried to balance budgets in the face of a plunging economy, today's governments allow deficits to rise. And that's good. And better policies help the world avoid complete collapse. The recession brought on by the financial crisis arguably ended last summer. But future historians will tell us that this wasn't the end of the Third Depression, just as the business upturn that began in 1933 wasn't the end of the Great Depression. After all, unemployment, especially long-term unemployment, remains at levels that would have been considered catastrophic not long ago and shows no sign of coming down rapidly. And both the United States and Europe are well on their way towards Japan-style deflationary traps. In the face of this grim picture, you might have expected policymakers to realize that they haven't yet done enough to promote recovery. But no. Over the last few months, there's been a stunning resurgence of hard money and balanced budget orthodoxy. I'll tell you why. Because the greedy bastards want to keep it all. They don't want to give it up. They've got theirs. And as far as they're concerned, the rest of us can go bugger. As far as rhetoric is concerned, the revival of the old-time religion is most evident in Europe, where officials seem to be getting their talking points from the collected speeches of Herbert Hoover, up to and including the claim that raising taxes and cutting spending will actually expand the economy by improving business confidence. Trickle down. What's that trickling down your economic future? As a practical matter, however, America isn't doing much better. The Fed seems aware of the deflationary risks, but what it proposes to do about these risks is, well, nothing. Nothing. 
The Obama administration understands the dangers of premature fiscal austerity, but because Republicans and conservative Democrats in Congress won't authorize additional aid to state governments, that austerity is coming anyway, in the form of budget cuts at the state and local levels. Why the wrong term in policy? The hardliners often invoke the troubles facing Greece and other nations around the edges of Europe to justify their actions. And it's true that bond investors have turned on governments with intractable deficits, but there is no evidence that short-run fiscal austerity in the face of depressed economy reassures investors. On the contrary, Greece has agreed to harsh austerity only to find its risks spreading even wider. Ireland has imposed savage cuts in public spending only to be treated by the markets as a worse risk than Spain, which has been far more reluctant to take the hardliners' medicine. It's almost as if the financial markets understand what policymakers seemingly don't, that while long-term fiscal responsibility is important, slashing spending in the midst of a depression, which deepens that depression and paves the way for deflation, is actually self-defeating. So I don't think this is really about Greece or indeed about any realistic appreciation of the trade-offs between deficits and jobs. It is indeed the victory of an orthodoxy that has little to do with rational analysis, whose main tenet is that imposing suffering on other people is how you show leadership in tough times. And who will pay the price for this triumph of orthodoxy? The answer is tens of millions of unemployed workers, many of whom will go jobless for years and some of whom will never work again. And most of whom will throw the GOP on their butts. On the phone with me is uh, David Bloom. He's an uh, energy expert, the author of Alcohol Can Be a Gas, and the founder of Bloom Distillation. And um, what he does, amongst other things, is bring ethanol to your local car. How good, good to have you on the phone, David. How are you doing? I'm glad to be here. Yeah, well, t- now, I, you know, I grew up without any ethanol in my life, and yet I hear it's a, it's, it's a, it's a... Well, that's a real pity. Yeah, it is, isn't it, isn't it? <laughs> put, more, put more corn in my genes. So it works. Uh, tell me how ethanol works as a substitute for oil, and then let me know why uh, it hasn't been popular from the get-go, okay? Well, from the get-go, it has been popular. Alcohol was the first auto fuel before gasoline was ever invented. Really? I mean, it wasn't like there was a pool of gasoline sitting around and someone said, gosh, wish we had an engine that had run on that. Uh-huh. But uh, alcohol was first, and uh, the Model T uh, actually was an alcohol vehicle that could also run on gasoline. So mm-hmm. it was the world's first flex-fuel vehicle. And, of course, it's taken 100 years to come back around to a place now where our our cars are now being made on the assembly line to run on both alcohol and gasoline, but you almost never hear about it, even though we've been doing it since 94. And that's basically because alcohol uh, is not real popular with oil companies and therefore not popular with the people they hire to defend their interests, our well, Congress people. Yeah, let me ask so, you something. Uh, I mean, I could just put pure ethanol in my tank in my car and it, it would run. It would be fine. Well, it, uh, you can at least go 50% with mm-hmm. a modern car, and many cars can go to 100% because fuel injection systems mm-hmm. are pretty smart, and they're run by a computer that can adjust for a wide variety of conditions. But uh, with a, uh, on the assembly line in Detroit, it's only $50 of different uh, materials, basically a little bit smarter computer, to make the difference between alcohol and gas, or you can buy a computer aftermarket to run on 100% alcohol. But today, you could go ahead and put in half a tank of alcohol, and your car will run just fine. 
Okay, now this doesn't apply to diesels, right? This is gasoline engines, right? Actually, alcohol can run diesel engines also. Uh, you know, the first diesel engines actually did run on combinations of alcohol and vegetable oil, and Dr. Diesel had uh, both versions. So we can actually run not only our cars, but our diesel uh, trucks. We can run our turbines that we use to make electricity, and we can even cook uh, and make uh, hot water with alcohol, uh, as we demonstrate with fuel oil burners. Well, okay, so uh, ha- has there been an actual, I hate to use the word conspiracy because it's a dangerous word nowadays, has there been a concerted effort to keep al- uh, to keep ethanol off the market as a fuel substitute or, or, or flex uh, a fuel w- with, with oil? Well, I got to tell you, the oil companies are really good at uh, spreading money around and having allies. The first real conspiracy against alcohol fuel was done back in the uh, early 19-teens when uh, basically the oil companies uh, gave a little old ladies group $4 million and they went out and bought Congress and passed Prohibition. Everybody thought that was about drinking, but as far as uh, Rockefeller was concerned, it was all about getting rid of the competition, which, you know, alcohol had half the market at the time. So Hmm. it's all very well documented that uh, the first alcohol conspiracy was... uh, was between with uh, Rockefeller and the Women's Christian Temperance Movement to get rid of demon rum and therefore Rockefeller's competition. Yeah, as W.C. Fields would say, Lompoc. Yes, that's where the WCTU was was centered. Well, then there's two conspiracies because it was the uh, the people that got rid of hemp weren't worried about smoking weed; they're worried about it as a competition for paper. So yeah, you oh, got well, and, and for synthetic fiber. And if you take a look at it, the Duponts were very involved in the hemp thing. This is the second time that they tried to take a product, demonize it as a drug, and then get it prohibited. Alcohol was first. The same playbook was used a couple of decades later with hemp. Absolutely fascinating. So let me, uh, this this is great. We're going to come back the next time we talk with you, David. We're going to talk about what is the, what's the carbon footprint of ethanol? You know, in other words, nothing is made without some use of resources, without, you know, with, without some sort of backlash. And we'll find out about that when we talk with David Bloom next time. Thanks a lot.